This is Wide Margins episode 19, Awake. We are going to look at the third and final chapter of Samson's life from the end of Judges chapter 16. This is the seventh and final cycle in the book of Judges. It's not the end of the book, but it's the seventh and final cycle in this book, and we're looking at the final judge, the twelfth judge by my count. Now, like I've said before, people count the judges different ways. Some go into uh, the book of First Samuel and count Samuel. Uh, they count Eli in that book. Um, some of them go into the sons of Eli, the sons of Samuel. We're just going to stop in the book of Judges so that we can get a nice even 12. That's a biblical number and cut it off right there. It's just simpler to understand. And another th- way that we get to that number is we don't count Abimelech. If you haven't listened to the episodes on Abimelech, go back and listen to them you'll probably arrive at the same conclusion I did, that Abimelech does not qualify as a judge. Now, just a bit of review on Samson, because this is our third episode on Samson. Uh, Samson began with the story of his birth, the Annunciation story, as some people like to call it, and it had more to do with his parents than with him. And we find his parents very much unaware at the beginning of that story, unaware more specifically that they were talking to the angel of the Lord or God himself. Now, they eventually became aware of that and were greatly afraid, but were reassured that no harm would come to them. And so that prepares us for the story of Samson, whom we're introduced to in chapter 14. This brings us to the second part of the story where we find Samson asleep. His parents were unaware, that's slightly unconscious to what's going on around them, but not totally. Their son Samson seems completely asleep and literally asleep by the end of that part of the story, uh, sleeping on Delilah's knees as she cuts his hair and his strength leaves him and he's captured. Now, Samson begins to wake up, though, near the end of that, And in verse 22 of Judges 16, we read that the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That's a little sign there that he's waking up, and we certainly do see him come alive in this last part. So we're going to talk about Samson in terms of being awake in this final episode, and I hope that we're able to draw something out of this that's helpful for us besides just looking at all the adventure that draws us into this story. I mean, it's it's great to see this once strong blind man afflicted by the Philistines hold on to both pillars of the house and bring it down with all the Philistines and taking out the whole leadership of the Philistines. But there's more than meets the eye here. We need to dig down below the surface and see what's really going on. And so that's what I hope we're able to do as we close the book on Samson. A first look at how Samson failed. You already know this, but we'll look back over it because uh, there's something highlighted here in verses 23 and 24 of Judges chapter 16. The writer says that the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god. That's the Philistine false god. And to rejoice And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. Do you see what happens when God's people don't act the way that they're supposed to act? Samson's shame became God's shame. Now, God did nothing wrong. He did nothing to bring shame upon himself. But his people are inseparably linked to him in the eyes of the world. So when Samson, the judge for 20 years over God's people, behaved in a manner unbecoming of an Israelite, he brought shame and reproach upon God. That's a very serious thing, and you can see why. Now that Samson has done this, a false god is getting the praise that is due the true and living God. And it happens today as well. You see a lot of these warnings in the first epistle of Peter. Peter's writing to an audience who are obviously suffering greatly due to persecution at the hands of unbelievers. And there are several places in the letter where he's warning them, if you don't behave yourself, you're going to bring reproach upon the church and on the name of Christ. And the first place, by my count, that he does this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says in verses 19 and 20, to uh, he says, It is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now notice he's not talking about suffering for uh, the right reason, of being punished for a crime or something like that, but for suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, he asks, if when you sin you're beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's saying, don't get punished for a crime if you have to suffer, and many of us do, suffer for doing what's right. And in doing this, you will be rewarded. His concern here becomes clearer as you read through Peter. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says very briefly here, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he explains in great detail in chapter 4, and I'll just read uh, verses 16 and 17 here, where he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Um, he had said earlier, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. Do you get the, the point here? The point is, we may suffer, and Samson is suffering here, but don't let it be a just suffering. I know that, I know that sounds weird. Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to suffer unjustly, but actually God is saying it's preferable to me that you suffer unjustly than suffer justly. Because as God's child, if you suffer justly because you deserve to suffer, you bring shame on him. On the other hand, if you suffer unjustly, not deserving it, you honor him as you stand up to that and show your faith in the face of hardship and terrible circumstances. You'll see Samson here as... You know, many people look at him as the worst judge because his behavior is bad. I think we could argue 
Jephthah was pretty bad. There are scenes where Gideon is bad. But as you go through the catalog, one cycle after another, I see a dissension from the first grouping of uh, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah. They were almost... They, they almost had impeccable character. And you descend that, from there down to Gideon and then the lesser-known judges, Jephthah, Samson. These cannot be held in as high of honor as the earlier judges, although in Hebrews 11 they're all listed together as equals. That's by the grace of God. Samson obviously had a lot of character flaws, and so he failed greatly. Look also, though, at how he suffered. In verses 25 and following, we start reading about how the uh, Philistines were treating him after they had captured him. They were having a lot of fun with this, and they were entertained by the, um, the spectacle of Samson feeling and groping about in his blindness. Uh, when their hearts were merry, that means when they were drunk, okay, they were, they were good and drunk, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. Now, he wasn't doing magic tricks or telling jokes or anything. They just wanted to watch this champion of the Israelites stumble around and grope in the darkness because he's blind. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. He's suffering here, and he's suffering justly, unfortunately, bringing shame upon God for that suffering. But the suffering is waking him up. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and notice you've been sleeping on your arm and it just it's killing you or you're sleeping wrong on your neck and the pain just wakes you up or maybe you had surgery and or you had an injury or something and you just couldn't sleep through the night because of the pain I've had nights like that they're terrible but there's something about pain that that wakes you up that heightens the senses that brings you out of your sleep and Samson is beginning to wake up, and here's what he's beginning to realize. He's beginning to realize that his calling had been more important than his gifts. Read back through the story of Samson, and what is he excited about? What, what is he glory in? What is he constantly excited about? He's excited that he can tear a, a lion with his bare hands. He's excited that he can kill people with the jawbone of a donkey. He's excited that he can catch foxes and tie their tails together and send them with torches through the fields of the Philistines. He's excited about his secrets. He's excited about his own strength. But he doesn't dwell a whole lot on his calling. He's a judge of Israel. But if the narrator had not told us that a couple of times, we would have never known it. That was the important thing. But Samson was more important, more concerned about the gifts and the glory that they could bring to him than his calling and the glory that would bring to God. We do it too. 
we get all excited about what we can do or on the other side we get insecure and down about what we can't do I'm not gonna list a bunch of examples because it's different for different people I think that you know if you're really good at encouraging people you tend sometimes maybe to be jealous of the people who can really teach well and then if you're a good teacher sometimes you're jealous of the people that can encourage well God made us all differently we've read 1st Corinthians chapter 12 we know that as a body we're different members with different functions we don't have the same function and God needs all of us working together using our unique talents and abilities for him but we get wrapped up in our abilities and we get wrapped up in others abilities and we forget the big picture which is what God has given us to do the mission if you don't like the word calling that's exactly what Samson did he he focused on the gifts instead of what he'd been given to do and that was the mistake that he made and he's waking up to that in his pain I don't know why God used this man I don't have to know I think it's great to know this because in Samson we see a lot of ourselves and we gain hope that that if God would use Samson he would use he would use me I just know that leaders in the past have used flawed men because they needed them and that's probably behind God's choice here there's a story that has survived from the Civil War about Ulysses Grant and Abraham Lincoln it's recorded in Alexander McClure's Abraham Lincoln and Men of War and um, uh, McClure was this journalist historian uh, I think he was a politician from Philadelphia and along with pretty much the rest of the country after the Battle of Shiloh he was very critical of Grant he wanted a Lincoln to to fire Grant and somehow he gained an audience with Lincoln and he writes about this meeting with Lincoln he says I appealed to Lincoln for his own sake to remove Grant at once and in giving my reasons for it I simply voiced the admittedly overwhelming protest from the loyal people of the land against Grant's continuance in command I could form no judgment during the conversation as to what effect my arguments had upon him beyond the fact that he was greatly distressed at this new complication when I had said everything that could be said from my standpoint we lapsed into silence Lincoln remained silent for what seemed a very long time he then gathered himself up in his chair and said in a tone of earnestness that I shall never forget I can't spare this man he fights that was all he said but I knew that it was enough and that Grant was safe in Lincoln's hands against his countless hosts of enemies I can't spare this man he fights maybe that's why God kept Samson he fights he fought Samson was a fighter and that's what Israel needed at the time that doesn't mean God excused his behavior you'll see Samson suffering the consequences of his actions God doesn't spare him from that but he fought so God used him on that note let's move to his prayer 
You see how he suffered. Look how he prayed, verses 28 and following. There, there are actually two, two prayers here. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, and his left hand on the other. O Lord God, remember me, he said, and strengthen me only this once. A more literal translation says, strengthen me this time. And you know what's really interesting about that word, translated time, it shares the same root with a very special word used at the beginning of Samson's story in chapter 13, verse 25, which tells us that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him and move him in these places. The word translated stir, same word translated time in his prayer here in chapter 16, same root. Now, I don't know if you can remember back. I don't even know if you listened back to that to that first episode on Samson. But we drew a distinction between how the Spirit was described in the cases of other judges and how he's described with regard to Samson. In the other judges, it is said that the Spirit rested on them or came upon them or something like that to suggest a Spirit came and he stayed with the, the judge throughout his or her judgeship. That's not the meaning of the word that's used here in chapter 13, verse 25. The meaning is he stirred him, he drove him, the spirit pulsated within him. It's a, the idea of an intermittent pulsing, driving, beating within Samson. A violent beating, maybe. One that came and went very descriptive of of how Samson lived. And now he's saying, near the end of his life, almost in an admission of guilt or truly in a confession, I have allowed the Spirit to leave me. And it was due to Samson's actions that this happened. I've allowed the Spirit to leave me. Let him come back one more time. Let him beat within me. I'm not asking for rescue. I'm just asking this one last time, give me my strength back. Interesting tie-in to chapter 13. In fact, there's there's a lot of interesting things going on in the narrative here. If you look, if you compare chapters 14 and 15 with chapter 16, there are a lot of parallels. It's almost like you're looking within this final cycle, you're looking at two mini-cycles, if I can call it that. Uh, in chapters 14 and 15 and chapter 16. They both um, have to do with, they both mention at the end of those sections that Samson judged for 20 years. It seems that chapters 14 and 15 describe his being led into judging Israel and chapter 16, of course, has to do with the end of his judging. So maybe between those sections, you have the 20 years without any information really on what happened during those 20 years. They were peaceful. There probably wasn't a whole lot happening, and that may be due to his effectiveness as a judge. But also in these sections, you see some other things 
in both of them, he comes into conflict with Philistines. In both of them, he's attracted to a woman who gets his secret from him and tells it to his enemies. And in both of them, events lead him to the end of his tether, and both of them end with prayer. In the first one, you see in chapter 15, he's fighting almost to exhaustion, and he almost dies of thirst, and he prays to the Lord and asks the Lord to deliver him by sending him water. Uh, He says, You've granted me this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall under the hands of the uncircumcised? That's when God splits a rock and has water come from the rock like with the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. And here he's praying for deliverance as before, at the end of his tether, in total exhaustion, with blind eyes, and knowing he's coming to the end of his life. Very interesting parallels there. I I don't know what to make of them except this. God, by organizing the book in this way, is drawing our attention to this prayer. The climax is the prayer. And, of course, the deliverance that God brings. So the organization, more so than the wording, is telling us that God is at work here. Another thing that's interesting to distinguish is this is the climax of the, the whole story, and it is not said, it does not say that the Spirit rushed upon Samson. Now, that statement is made three other times. If you add in the stirring of chapter 13 you got four instances where it said the Spirit began to stir, and then in chapter 14, verses 6 and 19, the Spirit rushed upon him, and that's said again in chapter 15, verse 14. But at when he prays at the end of chapter 15, and here in chapter 16, the Spirit's not even mentioned, but God acts in a very obvious way. And maybe the distinction is when the Spirit's mentioned, He's coming of his own volition without being beckoned by Samson because he's working on God's overarching purpose and mission to deliver the Israelites. But in these two cases where Samson prays, he's praying on his own behalf. Don't let me me, uh, die of thirst and let me bring this down, this house down, for the sake of my eyes. I mean, he's not talking about God's mission here or anything like that. He's talking about his eyes, vindicate me, give me vengeance for my eyes. So he's praying, and you see both things going on in Samson's story. God is working his overarching mission on behalf of his people, using this man, but he's also noticing the man within. And that's how it occurs throughout. God never forgets the individual. He hasn't forgotten you. He does have this mission that the church should go into the world and share the good news. But that good news is for the individual. And so Jesus can talk about how God so loved the world that he gave his only son in John 3.16. And then say things like he says in Matthew 10.30, even the hairs on your head are numbered. That both are going on as God looks at the big picture He also sees all the individual people involved. And he's looking on Samson here. Samson prays a second prayer in verse 30, Let me die with the Philistines, which leads us into how God delivered. Verse 30 continues, 
saying that he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down, took him, brought him up, buried him between Zorah and Eshtal, in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel for twenty years. Samson still had to suffer the consequences of his actions. Even though God was delivering him here, he had sinned, he had to deal with that, but God had not forgotten him and he brought him the vindication he prayed for and accomplished his mission to deliver the Israelites from Philistine bondage. And in this statement near the end that the dead that he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his lifetime, we see a glimmer of the gospel. We can glimpse the future in that little statement because Christ, like Samson, destroyed the enemy through his death. That's exactly what Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 teaches. I'm talking about how Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Samson killed more in his death than he did in his life. Jesus accomplished more with his death than any person has ever accomplished in his lifetime. It was the death that was key. Sacrifice. God has given us a look at that way back here in the book of Judges. That ends Samson, and I want to refer to the epic poem by John Milton on Samson as we bring this to a close. Which shall I first be well, thy bondage or lost sight, prison within prison inseparably dark? Thou art become a worst imprisonment, the dungeon of thyself, thy soul, which men enjoying sight oft without cause complain. Imprisoned now indeed, in real darkness of the body dwells, shut up from outward light to incorporate with gloomy night, for inward light, alas, puts forth no visual beam. O mirror of our fickle state, since man on earth unparalleled, the rarer thy example stands by how much from the top of wondrous glory, strongest of mortal men, to lowest pitch of abject fortune thou art fallen. Stay tuned, there's more about the book of Judges next time on Wide Margins.